Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. How many of you have ever heard of the term rumspringa? Some of you are like, I have no idea. Some of you have heard of rumspringa. Okay. It comes from the Pennsylvania Dutch Amish people. Rumspringa. It's when Amish teenagers turn 16 and they get to go on a rumspringa, a rite of passage. The word means to dance around, to run around, to frolic around. It's, it's a time when Amish teenagers can take part in typical teenage activities that normal American teenagers partake of. They get to go live in the real world for a period of time. Usually they get to watch TV. They get to have a cell phone. They get to wear blue jeans. They can go to a mall. But here's oftentimes what happens during run spring up. There are stories of these large parties in fields and in barns where these Amish teenagers just go crazy. Sex, drugs, alcohol, they go wild. Now, rumspringa is a weird practice. And the rationale of the Amish people is this. If we let these teenagers loose for a period of time and they experience the frolicking of the world and they sow their wild oats... They'll get it out of their system, and they'll want to come back and live the rest of their life as an Amish person and settle down. They'll get it out of their system. Now, this raises a very important question. Is it wise, parents, to allow younger teenagers, the younger generation, to have free reign to do whatever they want and to experiment with sin with no holds barred. Is that a deterrent to sin? Or does it enable or even celebrate sin? What happens when the older generation fails to disciple, lead, guide, shepherd the younger generation? What happens when there's that failure of spiritual leadership? Well, disaster strikes, leaving a wake of devastation as we will see in Judges chapter 2 this morning. Last week we began Judges chapter 2 and we saw that the nation of Israel cried big tears, but it was not godly sorrow. They cried because they got caught. They cried because they had to deal with the consequences. It was not godly Repentance. There was no lasting repentance. There was no true transformation. And that really sets the, the trajectory for the rest of the book of Judges that the Israelites did not repent. It was not godly sorrow. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It was remorse, but it wasn't repentance. So, the rest of chapter 2 is a snapshot of the entire book of Judges. 
it details for us what Israel's major problem is going to be from here on out. Now, there's a lot going on in this chapter, and we'll read it here in just a moment, but let me summarize this chapter. Let me give you this chapter in a sentence. It is this. There is a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There's a huge difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. Now, many of you have probably read J.I. Packer's famous book, Knowing God. And J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, which everybody should read, it's a classic, he says this, quote, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have great energy for God, you have great thoughts of God, you show great boldness for God, and you have great contentment in God. These four things did not define Israel. They had no great energy to serve God. Instead, they bowed down to the idols. They had no great thoughts of God. In fact, their imaginations were captured by the idols around them. They had no great boldness to share their faith with the nations around them. They adopted the ways of the nations around them. And they had no great contentment with God because they would rather have cheap substitutes in idolatry than find their satisfaction in God. So here's the point of this chapter. Israel knew about God, but they did not know God. And there's a huge difference. So let's explore this passage of Scripture this morning together, and I want us to see the dangers of not knowing God in three scenes or three sections that unfold for us. And so here's the first. We see the faithfulness of Joshua's generation. Now remember, Joshua comes before Judges. Joshua led them into the promised land. Judges is a follow-up of how they entered into the promised land. So let's begin reading. So Judges chapter 2, verse 6 through 9. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all the generations were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. Or the work that he had done for Israel. It's a summary statement of the generation that lived under Joshua's leadership. They served the Lord. They were faithful. Now they had experienced God firsthand. Remember, these were probably young children or teenagers when they crossed through the Red Sea. So they were little kids when they saw the Passover. They saw the Red Sea. They saw the manna and quail come down. They're grown up now, and they saw the leadership of Moses. They saw the leadership of Joshua. They were a faithful generation. They did the will of the Lord. However, there's one thing this generation failed to do. They failed to pass along the faith to the next generation. There was a failure in leadership. 
Moses passed it on to Joshua. Joshua fails here to lead the people to pass it along. Now, D.A. Carson has given this great insight to describe what happens in churches that drift away from the gospel. He says this, quote, The first generation believed and proclaimed the gospel. First generation. The next generation assumed the gospel, and the third generation denied the gospel. There's a tricky place between assuming the gospel and denying the gospel. To assume the gospel means you just take it for granted. And that's what Israel did. They knew about God, but they didn't truly know God. So the first generation under Joshua's leadership, very distinctly it says they obeyed the Lord. They served the Lord. They followed the Lord. But let's secondly this morning see the treachery of the next generation. Let's go back and read verse 10 again, and then let's go through verse 13. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now verse 10 is very curious to me. It's a curious way to state it. They did not know the Lord. Well, of course they knew who the God of Israel was. These are Israelites. They couldn't forget who God was. It wasn't like they forgot about God. Here's the point. This was not ignorance of who God was. This was apathetic rebellion. Here's the point. They did not want to know who God was. They did not know God in an intimate, personal way. They had information about God. They were Israelites. They had the name badge, God's people, but they did not want to enter into a dynamic, intimate, close relationship with the living God. The way Paul describes our relationship with Christ in Philippians 3.8. Listen to Paul's words. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Now, the word Paul uses there is not just mere head knowledge or information knowledge. It's this deep experiential knowledge of Christ. And Paul uses a very weird, almost coarse, kind of PG-13 word there. He says, I consider everything scubalon, rubbish, dung, rotten filth, what you would throw to dogs, everything else pales in comparison to having this great, intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Savior. So this new generation knew about God, but they didn't truly know God. And what happened as a result? As I was studying this passage this week, I was captivated by the verbs, the verbs used to describe Israel. Look at some of these verbs. Look at verse 11. 
They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They rebelled. This is moral, spiritual evil. They served and bowed down to the idols of Baal. Now, to serve and bow down means they would lay prostrate on the ground in humility before a false god. Only the living God deserves that type of submission, to bow down on your face before these false gods. Verse 12, they abandoned, they forsook, they rejected the Lord. Now, Here's where the Hebrew grammar is so essential. These verbs are used in what's called the imperfect tense in the Hebrew language, and it means this. It was continual, habitual action being done in the past tense. So you could translate it this way. They continually, as a lifestyle, ongoingly bowed down. Continually did evil. Continually abandoned. It, it marked their lifestyle. This was who they were. They were abandoning the Lord. And they were following these false gods, Baal and Ashtaroth, or you can call him Baal. I think most people go call him Baal. Baal and Ashtaroth. Now, who are Baal and Ashtaroth? Well, they're the Canaanite husband and wife god. Okay, so Baal. Who's Baal? Baal was the storm god, the rain god. Baal was the one that brought crops crops by bringing good rainfall. So, so Baal is the god of rain, the god of thunder, the god that you want to pray to to have good crops. His wife, Ashtaroth, the female counterpart, she's the fertility goddess. You pray to her to have children. So Baal brings you crops, Ashtaroth brings you kids. Now, in an ancient agrarian culture, what was most important? Crops and kids. And here's what would happen. Here's how you would pay homage to these gods. You would go to the temple and hook up with a prostitute and give yourself to a prostitute as the way to serve these gods. Now think about how tempting this would be for the Israelites. You can imagine a conversation between a Canaanite and an Israelite. It would probably go like this. Canaanite, Israelite. Here's the Canaanite. Hey, you Israelites, are, you're pretty religious people. And your God's pretty impressive. I mean, I've heard stories of your God lead you through the Red Sea, provided manna and quail, defeated Pharaoh's army. That's pretty impressive. But your God only does the big things. He doesn't really care about the day-to-day -day things. He's this distant God that does these big things. You want good crops, don't you? Yeah, you want good crops. You want to be blessed with children, don't you? Well, does your God help you with that type of day-to-day -day stuff, or does He only do the big things? Why don't you come with me, meet you and your buddies, come to me to the temple, and we'll show you a really good time. And by the way, your wife doesn't have to know. She doesn't have to know what we're doing. We'll go down to the temple, and I will show you a really good time. And in the end, your wife's going to thank you, because Baal will bless you with crops, and your wife's going to get pregnant, and you'll have a lot of kids. And by the way, you can still worship the God of Israel. I'm not asking you to abandon your God. You can still worship the God of Israel. But it would be really convenient for you to come worship Baal and Ashtaroth because after all, Israelite, you don't want to stick out like a sore thumb among all of us here. So come down to the temple and we'll show you a good time. Can you imagine that conversation in your mind? They bowed down to Baal and Ashtaroth. 
The psalmist explains it this way. Psalm 106, 34 through 40. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. Now the psalmist calls it demonic, bowing down to these idols as worshiping demons. Jeremiah says it this way in Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountains of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Can you... Picture the imagery that Jeremiah is giving here. You're out there digging a well. You're digging a cistern. And, and, and there's, there's no way it holds water. It's cracked. It's muddy. It's stagnant. It's mosquito infested. And you're playing around in that little well thinking that's going to satisfy you. And God says, be appalled. You, you want that? A mosquito infested stagnant well that holds no water? When I am the fountain of living water, you're going to forsake me? How in the world can you do that? So let's step back and ask a question. How did this happen? How did the younger generation get this way? Where was the failure in the leadership? What caused them to rebel? How did they not know the Lord? Well, this passage doesn't tell you, but let me give you some Old Testament histories to tell you two primary reasons why this happened. There were two primary groups in Israel responsible for leading, teaching, and shepherding the younger generation in Israel. Two groups. The first were the priests. The priests were ordained by God to teach the people. The priests were the pastors, if you will. They were to go house to house, village to village, and teach the people the word of God. The priests were responsible for teaching. Leviticus 10.11, talking to the priests, you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Teach the people. However, the priests are AWOL. The priests don't show up much in Joshua and Judges. As a matter of fact, when priests show up in the book of Judges, they're evil. So the priests, i.e. the pastors, are shirking their duty and failing to teach the next generation. So that's the first group, the priests. But more importantly, the second group, fathers, parents were responsible for raising the next generation in God's truth and His ways. Deuteronomy 6, 4-7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. The priests and the fathers failed in their spiritual leadership to 
the next generation. Now, judges do not explicitly come out and say this, but we have to infer, based upon the responsibility given to the priest and to the fathers in the Old Testament, they failed. Now, what's the application for us today? Here's the application for us today. When pastors and dads fail to be the spiritual leaders raising up the, gener- the next generation, things go badly. The next generation suffers greatly. I've said this before. It's not a matter of if your children are being discipled. Your children are being discipled. It's not if your children are being discipled. It's who's doing it. Is it TikTok, Snapchat, YouTube, Instagram, video games? Who's discipling your children? And the answer should be me, you. You are the primary responsibility to disciple your children. Now, yes, as pastor, I have a job to instruct and teach you, but dads, parents, moms, you have a role in leading your household. So let me speak specifically to dads here. Dads, you need to step up to the plate and be the spiritual leaders of your families, the primary discipler of your children. You need to set the course spiritually. Yes, as pastors, we'll come alongside you and help you, but Here's the problem in Judges. Priests failed, fathers failed. When pastors and fathers fail, families fail. Churches fail. Nations fail. So the second thing we see this morning is the treachery of this next generation. Now let's thirdly see the Lord's response to their evil. How does God respond? Let's keep reading. Verse 14 to the end of the chapter. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, because of those afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. How does the Lord respond to this evil? Does he turn a blind eye? Well, let's let bygones be bygones. No, as a holy and righteous God, how does he respond? It says right there, the Lord was kindled to anger. He was angry against Israel. Now, we need to be very careful here. 
This is fatherly discipline, not judicial obliteration. Let me say that again. God could have very easily destroyed Israel off the map and said, I am done with you. So God does not destroy them, but he disciplines them. And here's how he disciplines them. You want to follow these pagan nations around you? Great. They're going to overtake you. They're going to oppress you. They're going to come in and invade you. So they're going to be oppressed by these nations. They're going to be given over to these nations. These nations would attack them, and the Israelites would cry out. They would cry out to God. And so here's the the pattern of the rest of the book of Judges. Israel adopts the ways of the nations around them. The nations come and plunder them and, and overtake them. Israel cries out, and the Lord brings a deliverer, a judge, to save them. And so in verse 15, what do we find out there? At the very end of verse 15, they were in a terrible distress. This word distressed was often used of a potter that was molding clay on a wheel. It's like you're being squeezed. Israel's being squeezed hard. They're being hard-pressed on all sides. The Lord is angry at His people, but He shows unexplainable mercy in His anger. What does God do in verse 16? Well, this is where we get the first word judges show up in the Bible. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now, these are judges. Remember, these aren't men in black robes striking the gavel and making rules from the bench. These are military leaders. So I want you to think of a judge. A judge is a military leader endowed with the Holy Spirit to deliver, or i.e., save Israel out of the hands of their enemies. These military leaders. And this is sheer grace that God does this. God is not obligated to deliver Israel. God doesn't have to raise up judges. God could have let Israel just die in the promised land and be overtaken by all of these pagan nations. God could have said, hey, Israel, you get what you deserve. You had it coming to you, Israel. You cried those big crocodile tears and there's no repentance, so tough luck. Instead, in the midst of this discipline, God does show tremendous compassion for his people. Now, here's why God shows compassion for his people, because he's in covenant with them. He's made a promise to them. Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses. This is when God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock back in Exodus. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is merciful, God is patient, God is kind, but he also disciplines those he loves. So how does this treacherous generation respond to God's grace? How do they respond to God's grace? Well, what does Romans 2.4 tell us? Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay, so you think God is being kind to Israel. It's going to lead them to repentance. Is that what happens? No. Did they show godly sorrow? No. They could care less. As a matter of fact, what does Paul say? I mean, what does judges say here? 
Verse 17, they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. That's a strong word. They, the ESV says they whored. They prostituted themselves. Here's the image. Israel was God's bride. Israel as a nation was married to God. God was the husband. And they committed spiritual adultery against their husband. In verse 17, it says, They turned. They did not listen to their judges. They whored after the gods about them. They soon turned aside. They quickly turned. Here's the, here's the interesting word, guys. That word turned is the word for repentance in the Hebrew language. Shuv. They repented, but in the wrong way. So ironic. How are they supposed to repent? They're supposed to turn toward God in repentance. But instead of turning toward God in repentance, they turn the other way. The total opposite direction. It's a false, it's, it's a false repentance. It's a turning towards idolatry. And these verbs are in the perfect tense, which means they have lasting results. These are like some permanent, this is like a settled, permanent turning away from God. Now, we must remember that God is a jealous God. These are His people, and He's a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, we don't want to equate human jealousy with God as if it's a sin, but God is zealous or jealous for His glory, and He demands ultimate allegiance. He's not going to share His glory with another. God does not tolerate worshiping idols or prostituting yourself with idols. It would be kind of like this. Let's say I take Don out for an anniversary dinner. So Don and I, we go to Denver. We go to a really nice restaurant downtown. We're having a candlelight dinner, and we're talking about our 29 years of marriage, and uh, we're having a great time. And then the waiter comes up, and he slips a note to Don and says, Hey, good looking. Um, why don't you leave your husband and come? I've got a room over here, and let's, let's have some fun. And so... I look to Don and say, well, okay, I'm, I'm kind of an easygoing husband. You know, um, why don't you just go have some fun with this guy? Now, what would I do? We would have words. I would protect her honor, and I would be jealous for my bride in a good way. Nobody would fault me for being jealous and having words with this man. Back off, dude. She's my wife. You have no right to her I'm jealous to guard our marriage. I'm jealous to guard her. Okay, How much more should God have a jealousy for his people and say to the false gods, back off, this is my bride? But instead, they are prostituting themselves. They are spiritually committing adultery with these false gods. But here's the amazing thing about this passage of Scripture still shows mercy. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Groaning. That reminds me of when Israel was in slavery back in Egypt. Back in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. The people were groaning. Now, that doesn't mean they're repenting. 
They're just groaning. But here's the key word that shows up in the entire book of Judges. It's right there in verse 18. The Lord was moved to pity. That's a hard concept for us to think about. The Lord was moved to pity. Now, what does that mean? It means that God, and I can't understand the psychology of God here, so I'm doing my best to, to, to give what, what, what this means. God has such compassion for his people in the midst of their evil that he's willing not to destroy them and to relent of his anger and to give them chance after chance after chance. It's like this unlimited patience that God just keeps showing. He's intervening like a loving father. Like your, your child just does the stupid thing after stupid thing after stupid thing and you still just give them love because they're your child. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So this compassion is undeserved compassion. They're groaning. They don't deserve the compassion of Yahweh, the Lord, but he gives it to them anyway. Now, before we cast stones at Israel and say, Israel, you guys are nuts. Because you'll, you'll read Judges and you're like, Israel, you guys are nuts. Before you say, Israel, you're nuts, let's turn the, turn the mirror to yourself and say, Sean, you're nuts. Okay, <laughs> you, deserve, you deserve justice just as much as the Israelites do. How many times have we dishonored the Lord and turned our backs on Him? Can you guys turn on the air conditioning back there? I'm seeing people fanning themselves, and I don't want people fainting. And if you get cold, I'm so sorry. Um, Here's verse 19. Verse 19 shows the frustrating issue in the book of Judges. Here, here's where verse 19 gets frustrating. Okay, here, here's what happens. This is the pattern. Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Whenever the judge, judge died, they turned back. When the judge was with them, they were, when the judge was leading, they're on their best behavior. When the judge dies, they go back. So I want you to think about the judge like a dam on a river. Okay, so there's a small trickle of sin that's coming down the, the pike here. And God puts a judge to stop the sin, like a dam. And so it starts building up and building up and building up. And so it stopped. Their evil stopped when you got the judge there. But when the judge dies, what happens? You remove the dam, what happens? A raging river comes flying through there. What started out as a trickle is now a raging river. And so what judges are saying here is that when the judge died, they were worse than they were before. The judge was a restraining force that God used to discipline and to save Israel. But when the judge was removed, they just rushed headlong into worse sin, like removing a dam. And in verse 20, God gets straight to the point. What does he say in verse 20? So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, this is God, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. They've transgressed the covenant. They've broken the covenant. They've gone too far. So how is God's fatherly discipline going to play out on this generation? Well, look at verse 22. We see what God, God tells us what he's going to do. In order to test Israel 
by them, whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did. The Lord's going to test them. He's going to put them on a test. And here's the question. Are they going to be faithful like their parents, or are they going to walk in disobedience? God puts them to the test. Now, there's no hint of repentance at all. They're groaning. They're crying out because they're oppressed. They're crying out because they're dealing with the consequences. But there is no godly sorrow. There's no true repentance. It is worldly remorse. And again, the amazing thing about this passage is that God does not wipe them off the map. We see fatherly discipline instead of judicial destruction. Now, God's love is never an excuse to sin. But we need to realize how amazingly patient God is with them. But here's the ultimate problem of judges. What's their problem? What is their problem? They are slaves to sin. They're slaves to sin. They can't break out of this pattern of sin. They're addicted to sin. They're slaves to sin. The entire book of Judges deals with slavery to sin. If you want to know what Judges is about, I said it's the paganization of God's people because they become enslaved to sin. Dale Ralph Davis says it this way, They are held in sin's grip. They have Baal in their blood. The false god. They have Baal in their blood. Simply put, they knew about God but they did not know God. You will sink deeper and deeper into bondage to sin if you don't cultivate an intimate, growing relationship with Jesus. And my fear is that there are many American Christians who are in evangelical churches today that know a lot about God, but you don't know God. You know about Jesus, especially some of you children and youth that have grown up in church. You know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. Listen to Matthew Henry. He described Israel's sin. He says this, Idolatry is spiritual adultery, so vile, base, and treacherous a thing. And so it is no wonder that many never return who are addicted to it. They're addicted to sin. They have bail in their veins. They did not want to repent because they were so entrenched in their sins. Romans 13, 12 through 14, this was read by Mickey, one of our elders, during the time of confession. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Jesus is the light, and we're to put him on. We're to wear him. When you wear clothes, what do you do? Nobody wants to go outside without clothing on. It sticks to you. It clings to you. It goes wherever you go. You want Christ connected to you. And you make no provision for the flesh. You make no provision for sin. That word provision that Paul uses there comes from the root word to think. You don't want to think or mull or meditate how to make provisions for sin. Think about going on a camping trip for a moment. When you go on a camping trip or a hiking trip, you make plans, don't you? 
Okay, I got to bring a tent. I got to bring a backpack. I got to bring food. I got to I got to make the reservations at the campsite. You make provisions, right? You don't just show up. You don't just show up at a campsite and say, "Well, I hope a tent shows up here." Maybe somebody will let me borrow a tent. No, you make provisions. In the opposite way, Paul's saying, "Don't do that when it comes to sin. Don't make all these preparations. Don't make all these provisions. Don't make plans to sin to give into your lusts. Instead." You kill your sin by putting on Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus. What does it mean to put on Jesus? It means you think about Christ. You pray to Jesus. You immerse yourself in the scriptures. Here's the point. Christ's love for you and his power in you should so consume your thoughts, consume your imaginations, consume your minds, that he is more glorious he is more beautiful than anything else that you want to do. You see, the enticements, the addiction to sin is going to come at you very, very hard. And your heart's going to be drawn to sin. So you need something greater than your desperately wicked heart to draw you away from sin, and that's Jesus. He's the only one that can fight that addiction, fight that temptation. The more you know Jesus, the more you will obey Jesus. So there's a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Here's what Jesus said about himself in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You want to know what eternal life is? knowing Jesus. So here's the question. Do you know Jesus? I'm not asking you, do you know about Jesus? Do you have facts and figures about Jesus? Do you know Christ in such an intimate way that you are living in dynamic union with Him as your Lord and Savior? You're trusting Him. You're loving Him. He's your all in all. Is Jesus your life? Is Jesus the source of your strength? Do you know about Jesus? Or do you truly know Jesus? And my prayer is that you don't leave this place without knowing Jesus personally by repenting and believing in Him as your Lord and Savior. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and ask that question, do I merely know about God or do I truly know God through His Son? Jesus Christ. Would you spend some time in prayer this morning? As we come into your presence this morning, we see the treachery of the Israelites. How easy it was for them to be addicted to sin. To rebel. To transgress. To forsake you. And it may be so foreign to our ears and so, so long ago that we would think, That's, that would never happen to me. I could never do what they did. But Lord, we know the wickedness of our own hearts and how easy our hearts are drawn towards sin. So Lord, would you give us your strength this morning that only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Help us to put on Christ as our armor of light. Jesus, you are the light of the world and you are our protection and Help us to put off the old, put off the sin, 
kill the sin in Jesus to put you on. And that means having our eyes fixed on you. And that means spending time with you in prayer and reading our scriptures and Lord, just cultivating that intimacy with you. Lord, I want to pray a special prayer for parents this morning that they would be the primary disciplers of their children. And Lord, we know that this culture has so much evil coming at our children. Father, our, our children, our youth are bombarded daily with filth and sin and all manner of ungodliness. Lord, would you just intervene in a powerful way, protect the hearts and minds of our children. Help parents to be strong and vigilant and proactive. Lord, help us as a church to be surrounding parents with encouragement and love and support. Because it's difficult in this world, Lord, as, as parents of younger children with all the things that, are being, that they're facing. It seems like early and earlier ages. So God, would you just protect our children? Lord, we do pray for the younger generation. Lord, help us not drop the ball. Help us keep watch. Help, help us to be vigilant and proactive that, that it would not be said of us that there's a generation that came behind us that did not know the Lord because we failed to instruct or disciple or encourage. So Lord, help us to be the people you've called us to be. Help our hearts to be so focused on the glory of Christ and the truth of your word that, Lord, we do stick out like sore thumbs in this culture in a good way because we're following you. Help us be distinct from the world. We're in the world, but not of it. We need your grace. We need your power. Help us to walk from this place today, Lord, with victory, with encouragement, with our eyes on you, Jesus. Help us to put you on, to clothe ourselves with you, Jesus, daily. And we know that your Holy Spirit lives in us to give us that power to do that. We need you, Lord Jesus, more than ever. So we confess our dependence upon you, our love for you, and our devotion to you. It's in your name that we pray these things, Lord. Amen.